Hi, and welcome to this episode of the HRW Shift podcast. Uh, I'm Rhiannon. I'm a behavioural scientist with the HRW Shift team. And if you've listened to some of our other episodes, you might have heard me on our episode of The New Normal. And today I'm really pleased to be joined by Caitlin, who you'll also recognise from our episode on dementia. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me, Rhiannon. It's lovely to have you back. So in this episode of Bouncing Back, Resilience, Is It What You Think?, Caitlin and I are going to be sharing a little of our own personal stories of resilience and reflecting on our own journeys that have brought us to where we are today. And then we'll work through what actually is resilience and what that actually means for all of us living in these uncertain and challenging pandemic shaped lives. So, Caitlin, did you want to start with telling us a little bit about your story and why that gives you a distinct vantage point to reflect on resilience from? So yeah, thanks Rhiannon. Um, so when I was in my third year of university, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma um, and I underwent six months as chemotherapy during my final year. So I think reflecting back, I, um, through various different factors, sort of allowed myself to be quite resilient through this time. Um, So yeah, really looking forward to talking more about this and the different factors that I think allowed me to get through what was a really difficult period in my life. Yeah, um, we're really very much looking forward to hearing about that as well, as I understand your journey to diagnosis was quite difficult as well, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, it was. It was was quite a long um, period, a lot of back and forth with symptoms that weren't going away and they weren't able to put it down to a lot and different tests that kept coming back inconclusive um but after a few months they they got to it and it was you know a long road to the treatment it was six months um Mm. but yeah as I said through I think the support that I had um I was able to get through it that sounds really difficult so thank you for for sharing with us today so I guess my story, just to give a little bit of context, um, as you know, I'm a behavioural scientist as part of this award-winning team with genuinely wonderful colleagues like Caitlin here. Um, and a big step on the road to getting there was achieving a master's in social cognition, which is a discipline of psychology from UCL. Which, if you'll forgive the the uncharacteristic hubris, it was a moment in my life that I'm really proud of. I'm the first person in my family to get to university. That was truly something that I could never have expected. And one of the reasons for that is that when I started my journey to university, uh, so that first year of sixth form, 16, 17 years old, um, I was actually homeless. So as you can probably imagine, the story as to how that ended up being the case is quite complicated, but it essentially starts sometime before that. So my mum has always had quite serious mental health problems and was in and out of psychiatric hospitals since I was small. And when my parents uh, divorced when I was 10, it became just my mum and me. So no siblings and I became her carer. And uh, it stayed that way until I was 14. Um, And when I was 14, she was sectioned. So was told that she needed to go for an inpatient stay at the local psychiatric hospital. And that was not something that was optional. So once she was admitted, I asked the chief staff nurse there, Tony, who I'd known for many years by this point, um, how long it was going to be this time. And he said seven to 11 days. And I looked at him and bearing in mind that I 
was very attuned to my mum and her well-being and having known Tony for so long I could kind of read him quite well as well so I asked him again and I said no really how long and he just said he didn't know and that seven to 11 days uh, became one continuous stretch of 11 years so the next few years were obviously quite challenging as I'm sure you can imagine and due to a number of complicated circumstances I became homeless a couple of years later so I sofa surfed for around six months when I was in my first year of sixth form so sofa surfing is when you move between many different places temporarily staying with friends or relatives or anyone who offers up a bed sofa or stretcher floor that you can stay on uh, without paying and I was still going to school full-time and supporting myself financially through my part-time job at weekends from there I was eventually given a room in a hostel which was in the south of the city which wasn't quite so helpful because my school was in the north but then I was offered a room in a youth hostel run by the FOIA Federation project uh, which is a much more appropriate environment for me for full of other 16 to 24 year olds who are also uh, homeless so a bit like Centrepoint here in London essentially so I lived in three hostels before being awarded a housing association house which is essentially like a council house um, where I lived until I made what was the scariest and best decision of my life which was to trade my only home for a room in halls of residence to study an undergraduate degree so that's my background you've clearly shown a lot of tenacity and drive <laughs> thank you a bit of an unusual background I think so now you know a bit about us and our unique perspectives I think a good place to start is by jumping straight into exploring what resilience is. So what actually is resilient? I think there's a couple of dictionary definitions which I looked up. One of them is the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties, toughness. And the other one, which I found quite pleasing, uh, was the ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape, elasticity. So that's quite fun. But what does it mean in the real world? Psychologists define resilience as the process of adapting well in the face of adversity or trauma, tragedy, threats, significant sources of stress like family and relationship problems or obviously serious health problems, workplace or financial stresses. And as much as resilience involves bouncing back from these difficult experiences, it also involves kind of profound personal growth. And I think it's partly about recognising that there are many aspects of your life that you can control, modify and grow with. Although these challenging events are certainly painful and difficult, they don't actually have to determine the outcome of your life. And that's kind of the essence of, of resilience as it's seen from a psychological perspective, which I guess kind of brings us on to the debate that surrounds it quite often which is is it a skill or is it a personality trait what do you think Caitlin so I'm going to cop out a little bit here Rihanna and actually say I think it's a combination of both really I think you know when we talk about resilience we probably need to first of all start by saying that at times in our lives and currently we're all probably shown a lot of resilience with living through a pandemic and all the changes that period has brought Mm -hmm. But I think one thing with resilience is that the people that are resilient probably display certain personality characteristics, things like being a good communicator, being emotionally aware, having problem solving skills. 
And I think that they actually use those personality traits skillfully to actually allow them to be resilient and to get them through, you know, tricky periods and stresses. So I also think, you know, it's important to recognise that some people are naturally more resilient. But I do agree that, it, you know, you can use the personality traits that you have skillfully to learn how to cope with these situations and to hopefully become more resilient too. Uh, yeah, I really, I couldn't agree more. I think fundamentally it's a skill. And as with any skill in life, some people have more of a natural propensity towards it than others. But that doesn't mean that it's something that can't be nurtured and developed, you know, a bit like a muscle. The more you use it, uh, the stronger it gets. And I don't know if this is something that you heard. You, you probably did hear a lot of it. But one of the things I've heard as kind of the, the comment, oh, you're you're so strong. And, you know, there's no doubt that that's really well intentioned. And, and it's really validating, like recognising that things that we've been through have been really challenging. But it also kind of implies that there's a choice. Yeah. And I think there's a common place where perspectives on resilience can become a little bit derailed. I mean, it's one of those tricky circumstances where you don't know what reserves you have. You don't know how you'll behave, how you'll manage until you're actually tested. To this end, I'd, I'd really encourage people not to undersell themselves or underestimate themselves. Kind of like you were talking about just a moment ago, Caitlin, if we took ourselves back in time two years and I said to you, oh, do you know what? In two years time, there's going to be this massive global pandemic. No one's going to be able to travel between countries. Everything's going to be shut down. Shops will close. People will be furloughed and they'll lose their jobs. Um, you won't be able to socialise with your family. You won't be able to leave your house unless it's for one hour of allowed exercise a day. You know, if I said all of that to you a couple of years ago or kind of, you know, framed it differently as, oh, I live somewhere else and this is something that happened there. You know, my instinctive reaction to that would be, my God, <laughs> that sounds just impossible. Like I can't I could never do something like that. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's, you know, a really good point. And I actually spoke to my mum ahead of recording this podcast and she's a nursery school teacher. Mm. And even from the age of three to four on the primary school curriculum now, they are starting to encourage sort of the development of these skills in terms of resilience and obviously mental health now. It's greatly put at the forefront of a lot of you know this the curriculum and what they teach children. And one of the things is all about the fact that you target praise on effort now rather than the focus on the outcome and I think that's a real important way of giving the resilient skills to children. I had no idea about that I think gosh that's really important. Exactly yeah definitely. Just kind of going back to this train of thought about not realising how difficult it is and what you can do until you're in that situation you know yes. absolutely stop the world I want to get off. Like, I can't tell you how many times if there'd been an emergency bright red escape button, I would have hit that thing like there was no tomorrow. But the reality is, is that there are certain things that are outside of your control. And I think resilience is about what you do with that. Yeah. Um, sometimes it can feel like 
one hit after another hit after another hit and there is a kind of natural tendency to kind of wonder you know why why is this stuff happening to me mm-hmm. and that's completely normal it's completely organic and it's about honoring that recognizing that because that's that's pain that's suffering and struggle and it's not about denying that it's about recognizing that and saying okay but it has happened so it is just one of those things and what matters now is what I do next and that's kind of where the choice comes in when I reflect back on sort of a lot of my experiences from childhood and adolescence you know it was very very hard and that period where I was homeless my one of my overriding memories is of just being completely exhausted in in every possible way emotionally mentally physically and right now I'm sure that that's something that many many of us can relate to and resilience isn't about denying that it's not about and trying to put that in a box and not deal with it it's about processing that and as I said deciding what you're going to do next yeah did you ever feel overwhelmed or or something like that yeah I because there was you know points where I definitely didn't feel that resilient um I remember there was one time when I just sort of found out and it was a really warm day um in Liverpool and I had to go to this appointment for these different scans and to visit various different doctors and actually I remember walking through Liverpool and it was the hottest day of the year so far. It was the Grand National. And for those of you that know Liverpool, it's a party, wild, fun city. And I remember just thinking, for goodness sake, I just wish I was that girl sat in the pub just with her friends having a drink and not off to this horrendous scan to get this radiation pumped in me as I sit on my own all day. And actually, I think that was probably the lowest point for me. And, you know, I recognise that point that actually, yeah, this is really bad. And it is okay for me to feel sad and down about it because it's a rubbish situation. But I think at that point, what was really important for me to remember is actually, yeah, I'm not in control of this. This cancer is inside me. I'm going to get rid of it. But actually, I am in control of my reaction. And I had that time to just feel a bit down and sad and then... You know, a few days later, I picked myself up and just sort of focused on starting the treatment and getting through those six months. Gosh, I can't imagine what that must have been like. But again, Rhiannon, I can't imagine what it was like for you either. (laughs) So I think that's part of resilience, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I read somewhere quite recently that being able to show compassion to yourself is one of the things that is critically important to be able to show empathy to others. So I think certainly it's kind of honoring each other's experiences and not diminishing in any way I think there is sometimes this tendency certainly amongst some people who sort of have suffered in some way that actually hang on a minute I'm not so bad you know look at look at this person over there they've got it so much worse than me and and I shouldn't be feeling this way because you know I'm so lucky in all of these ways what I've been through doesn't compare to what that person's been through I think one of the things I think is quite important with that is kind of to recognise your broken arm doesn't hurt less just because someone else has lost mm-hmm. theirs. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're going to go on to it, I think, now um, and talking about, yeah, the fact that you're not unique 
going through these experiences and that was something that I definitely think is really important to recognise that actually it's more normal that people experience bad things in their life than go through life without them you know bad things it's part of human existence really and I think that's sort of what you've got to remind yourself of that we have this sort of tendency I think to think everything's got to be perfect within our lives but actually it's the case that it is being part of human that you know it doesn't always go our way. Yeah I think this kind of brings us quite neatly onto the sort of question about how do you cultivate resilience I think exactly as as you're kind of alluding to there Caitlin I think one of the key things is to recognize that hey you know what shit happens yeah you're not singled out and you're not unique terrible things happen to all people at all different points in time and because I'm quite open with my experiences I think sometimes that has kind of supported other people in feeling that they can kind of be open with me and the one thing that I repeatedly have um, reinforced to me is that you never know what's going on behind closed doors Mm -hmm. there are parts of ourselves and our personal lives that we protect so fiercely that most of the time no one has any idea about what it is that we're going through most of the people Um, in my working life and in my social life and university and all of these sorts of things you know they have no idea about this chapter in my story and it's not because I have hidden it or because I'm not comfortable talking about it it's because it just doesn't come up it's not relevant people don't ask those sorts of personal questions because conversations often don't go to those sort of deep and meaningful levels unless it's you know in an evening in a bar (laughs) isn't that right Caitlin yeah exactly (laughs) how we we first established um uh sharing of our stories uh so yeah you, you never know what's going on behind closed doors and virtually everyone has something that they're dealing with every family has a skeleton and it's it's about recognizing that actually you're you're not alone in that right yeah and also you know unfortunately no one ever said life was fair that's <laughs> uh, something that I think so because of because of my experiences I do a lot of youth work um I was quite drawn to it quite early on sort of I wanted to take my experiences and empower other young people so I'd obviously learned a lot through through everything that I I'd experienced and I wanted to be able to channel that into something positive quite naturally one of the things that I often hear these young people struggling with is it's not fair mm-hmm. it's just not fair and unfortunately there there isn't an answer to that you know the answer to that is yeah I'm sorry it's not really now what matters is what you choose to do there's a there's a quote and I forget who it's attributed to I think it's one of those gray ones which it could be attributed to a a variety of people I think Stephen Covey or Viktor Frankl but just as you were saying Caitlin there's stimulus and there's response and in between there's a space (laughs) and that space is where you choose what what happens next I think one of the key things then is about framing and perspective yeah definitely a friend of mine shared uh, a quote with me from uh, Jean-Paul Sartre 
Pants. <laughs> yeah, practicing my French pronunciation in my brain there. I probably butchered it, but that was my best attempt. So there you go, Jean-Paul Sartre. He's a philosopher and I think he was a, a writer as well. And he said, freedom is what we do with what is done to us. Freedom is what we do with what is done to us. And when I heard that, wow, yeah, just kind of really blew my hair back. I think this really kind of aligns with a perspective that essentially there's there's two paths in life. And there's the path that you choose for yourself and there's the path that has been chosen for you. And the question is, is are you in the driving seat of your own life or are you handing over power to someone or something else? And then it's about choosing which of those seats you actually want to sit in. So, again, it's not it's not denying the difficulty of the situation. It's about recognising that and saying, yeah, OK, it's really awful. But what am I going to do about it? One of the things about that is that when you change your perspective on things, so when you decide to take control and you take control of your perspective on things, as you change your perspective, what you think changes and what you think changes what you feel and what you feel shapes our behaviour. And so by choosing to look at something in a different way, you can kind of completely change your experience and how the world interacts with you. Yeah, I find that quote really resonates with me as well. I think it's great and sort of really summarised. I think probably both our attitudes, um, Rhiannon, quite nicely there. But yeah, I guess just from my own perspective um, and during the time that I was ill, I definitely tried to focus on what was good, because if not, you would be in a pit of, you know, despair, really. I have to say my diagnosis, if you know about Hodgkin's lymphoma, if you were to get a cancer, it's one of the most treatable ones. They've done lots of research and they now have a chemotherapy regimen that means most people do survive from it. So for me, that was great and I know that you know it's not the case for all people um, with chronic illness and cancer patients that that's the same situation so that was for me something that I was able to focus on actually at the end of this six months I am going to be able to go back to some well mainly to a normal life really and be healthy once again but in terms of sort of the short-term focus even just thinking about a trip to the races with my um, friends or a small trip to the lakes halfway between my chemotherapy it was them goals and those small sort of bits of happiness to focus on that I really think helped me get through and allowed me to sort of have this take this driving seat I guess on my life um, Mm. through that time but Rhiannon I think it would be good to hear from your perspective as well I know that at the time you were obviously at university and that was focused for you in terms of just studying and so from your perspective you know how did you take the driving seat as it was? I think for me no one in my family had been to university and so that was something that just kind of kept me moving forwards and there were sort of big periods in my life where I remember thinking to myself one day this will just be a bad memory. Mm -hmm. And that's all it will be. It will just be a bad memory. You will have moved on. You will have done other things. You'll be in a better place. You'll have a partner. You'll have a life. You'll be able to put food on the table without worrying about where the next bill is going to come from. 
and it will all just kind of come together and I think it was that determination that I was working towards something working to achieve something that that really really helped um and I think if I if I if I hadn't had that um it would have been very easy to become very lost oh thanks for sharing that Rihanna just kind of recapping on what we were saying about being in the driving seat and um, honouring what you're feeling. It kind of takes us to an interesting little segue and it's around the positive psychology conundrum. So positive psychology is something that's kind of really hit popular culture in the mainstream media in recent years. And it's this idea that we take control of our feelings and our lives and we recognise and attend to all of those things that are positive in it and focus on those things. And I think that is really important. It is so easy to become accustomed and to take for granted all sorts of little things that we don't realise just accumulatively how much they make a difference, like a stable roof over your head and a comfortable bed, being able to be warm knowing that you can turn the heating on and still afford to put food on the table. You know, all of these things, it's very easy to become accustomed to if it's something that is routine. And that is human nature. So being mindful of that and actively practicing gratitude, like recognizing those things is really important. And it definitely helps with sort of positivity and emotional stability and emotional well-being. But this has also kind of come at a bit of a cost as well, because there's been this kind of misconception that practicing all of those things means that we're never allowed to be sad or angry or upset because hey look at all of those great things that you've got going on in your life and if you've got all of those great things going on in your life well you shouldn't be upset about this other thing I think that's actually quite dangerous and really not healthy the research has shown that that sort of boxing up of those emotions and not recognizing them, not addressing them, just kind of shoving them down. That doesn't help with positivity, doesn't help your emotional well-being. In fact, it actually increases emotional fragility because what you're actually saying is this is my ideal. I'm going to look at the nice stuff and I'm going to pretend all of this other stuff isn't happening. And the world doesn't work like that. You know, to go back to the example given earlier, If I break my arm, that doesn't mean it hurts less because you have lost yours. So just because we have these positive things in our lives doesn't mean we're not allowed to be sad or angry or upset when things go wrong, when we're lonely, when someone is sick, when we have financial concerns, when there's stress at work. You know, it's not about denying those things. It's about taking time to experience those and honour them process it and let it go so you you go there you experience those emotions but you don't live there you don't stay in that space that's what it's really about and the reason underlying that is that all emotions serve a purpose all of them um there's a I don't know if you've seen it I could talk endlessly about this there's a fantastic Pixar film um called uh Inside Out um and uh fyi i'm not being paid to promote (laughs) i just love it inside out is a film that takes place in the mind of this 11 year old girl it has her five core emotions personified so you have 
joy, sadness, anger, fear and disgust. These emotions secretly run the show. So you get a kind of inside view of what's going on in her head as they try to lead her through a house move with her parents to a new city where she has to adjust. And even the five emotions are actually loosely based on Paul Ekman's work. So, you know, they've really gone to town. Pixar have done their homework and mm-hmm. it's such a treat. I don't, have you seen it, Caitlin? I don't no, know what, Rhiannon. I'm okay. keeping very quiet because I am very embarrassed that despite your promotion throughout oh. our meetings and conversations, I've still not watched it. Oh, late. That'll be this week, <laughs> week's job. I'll definitely, I'll definitely give it a watch. Well, you're in for a treat. (laughs) But anyway, the whole point of me venturing down that random rabbit hole um, is that the emotions, they all serve a purpose. And what we discover through the course of the movie, which I'm not going to give you any spoilers, we understand why sadness is important. It shows how our emotions and their external expression of them communicate to our network to our support network something that you know the the young people that I've worked with they've they've also found is that you know that anger that fire that can really keep you going that can give you real strength to dig in and keep on keeping on when everything seems against you and similarly with sadness you know when you're sad you can see that and when you cry people want to comfort you if we box up all of these emotions, all of this stress, this overwhelm, this loneliness, and we don't share that, then we're not signaling to our community that we need that support and that's a, that strength, that courage that comes from having people around you. So all emotions have a purpose and it's about feeling that and honouring that and then moving on. I think also there's a lot to be said for the support of friends and family as well. So I also had um, a friend of a friend who was going through lymphoma at the same time as me, which, you know, it's an awful um, coincidence, really, and not something that you would ever really want it. But actually, it allowed me to have someone to share the experience with um, and to talk through, you know, the different milestones and the different um, chemo sessions and the hair loss, etc. And it was nice to have someone that you could talk quite openly about. I'm a really strong believer that a problem shared is a problem solved. And I think, Rhiannon, you also are a strong agreeer with that. Absolutely. Um, What was the support like for you during your difficult time? Yeah, so it was a little bit different for me because obviously there had been that breakdown in the family unit for me. So I didn't have that. But one of the things that, again, I think is a key facet of the genuine positive psychology around recognising what you have um there's a there's this book called outliers by malcolm gladwell um where he basically talks about how people who achieve these phenomenal things they almost certainly haven't done it alone you know although they are the ones who have you know put their foot across the finishing line to achieve a certain goal there have been all sorts of people backing them in various different ways throughout their lives and you know, one of the things that I had was support from all sorts of quote unquote unexpected places. So my head of sixth form, for example, um, he was a, a really supportive figure. Similarly, I had a sociology teacher um, who took it upon herself again to kind of help me. And one of the difficulties I had was with completing coursework because the school library didn't stay open late because it's a school, it's not a university. And Obviously, given my circumstances, I I didn't have a computer. 
So doing coursework was really challenging. Um, and so this sixth form sociology teacher arranged the loan of a laptop to me, a student in the mid noughties, which was not a common thing because she saw that I had a need. And I think one of one of the things that life has shown me is that for every awful thing, for every person that has ill intent, there are 10 plus who will complete random acts of kindness. Completely agree. So moving on to another section then, I guess I'd be really interested to hear about how you managed everything, Caitlin, because obviously having that diagnosis and still being at uni and being in your third year, like no less, like that must have been such a lot. Mm. Yeah, I think, Rhiannon, it's what we've been saying throughout. I think it's about recognising that this situation is rubbish but actually setting myself reasonable goals throughout that time and sort of viewing the situation in a realistic way. And for me, I knew that it was probably going to be, yep, a rubbish year. But actually now, you know, a few years on, my life is pretty normal and I don't particularly think about it day to day anymore. So for me, it was about setting those goals, which was even, you know, as I talked about trips to the races, bottomless brunches with my friends, actually getting to those points after a few days of chemotherapy, feeling a bit rubbish and on the weekend um, actually being able to bounce back and look forward to those happier times. And also the goal of sort of getting through uni, I think for me that was really helpful. That allowed me to feel normal and it allowed me to get through it and yeah, sort of be a bit more realistic and recognise that life isn't going to be put on hold because of this. Ah, it's just wonderful. I couldn't agree more. Again, just those goals, um, one thing at a time. Yeah, so what was it for you then, Rhiannon, the main ones obviously being education, but was there anything else? So I think there was quite a lot of time where I really did just struggle. And then it was about actually breaking it down, like not having big goals. I think something that can quite easily go overlooked is that life isn't just about achieving those big things those big moments you know it's not it's not all about getting that masters that I'm so proud of or or whatever and actually nor is resilience so resilience it's not like um it's not like Hollywood makes it out to be you know it's not Rocky with your montage you know running and punching and up those steps in Philadelphia it's one step in front of the other it's getting up in the morning on a day where you really don't feel like getting up it's about going to class on a day where that feels impossibly hard but you're gonna do it it's about going to work it's about caring for your children it's about putting food on the table it's those little things one step at a time and if one day at a time is too much it's one hour at a time And if one hour at a time is too much, it might sound silly, but it's one minute at a time. And it may be that you find things to lose yourself in. You know, I joke about it, but like Harry Potter literally saved my life. (laughs) And also music as well. Music is incredibly powerful. And it's the thing with music is that when you listen to those songs that are about heartbreak, are about loss and grief and loneliness, again, you you connect you find that hey do you know what there is someone out there who knows what it like what it's like to feel like this maybe I'm not alone 
and being there in that moment and having that connection with music with movies with dance if that's your chosen method of expression it's about finding something that you can lose yourself in mm-hmm. and just taking it one thing at a time um you're getting up every day you're putting one foot in front of the other and ultimately that's what resilience is about so I challenge anyone who thinks they don't have it yeah. to demonstrate to me how they don't when they're still existing and doing what their lives need of them right here and right now. So I think Rhiannon, a really nice example um, of resilience. I heard um, Sabrina Cohen Hatton speaking on the radio mm-hmm. and it might not be a name that's overly familiar to you but she is the West Sussex Chief Fire Officer so that is I think it's the most senior rank in the fire service and Sabrina has done that by the age of 36 obviously in a particularly male-dominated role as well so from that point of view she probably already sounds quite resilient Mm. but actually I heard her on the radio speaking about where that tenacity and that drive came from and she shared an experience quite similar to yours Rhiannon in that when she was a teenager she was also homeless and after having a breakdown of relationships with her mum sadly following the death of her dad so What was really nice um, when I was listening to her on this radio that she went from selling the big issue to saving up this money to get that stability and to get that control that she needed to then actually buy a a flat. And she raised her ambition. So she said to herself, I'm going to set myself a goal. And it's not just going to be a goal that's small. It's going to be a big goal, which is to be a firefighter, because that's what I want to do. And I've got a really nice quote from her here that said, I did two and a half years of what felt like the worst every day. I guess I wanted to rescue other people in a way that no one had been able to rescue me. And I just think what's really nice is this is a perfect example of resilience on a big scale in terms of the fact that she's like you, Rhiannon, turned what, you know, is an awful experience where she faced all of these difficulties being homeless. She gave one example, the fact that she was on the streets And she looked up and it was her geography teacher, I think, who looked at her and then crossed the road. Um, And, you know, she never got any support. She had nothing apart from this big issue, which she used to her advantage. And now she's one of the most successful, high ranking um, female firefighters in the country, which is just absolutely amazing. Fair play. Massive (laughs) respect for her. Yeah, clearly her circumstances have not defined her and she's actually used the challenges that she faced to actually bring that to a role where you need to be calm under pressure, you need to be decisive, where you need to work well within a team. Um, So a perfect example of using resilience to your advantage, really. So I think that kind of brings us to a wrap for this podcast episode. Um, We hope you've enjoyed listening to us and our thoughts and ponderings and occasional meanderings on resilience um we'd love to hear from you and how you've benefited uh, from resilience in your life and in your strategy so you can email or tweet or linkedin us if that can be a verb um you'll find the details in the show notes below thank you for listening thank you thanks everyone